kind of shocking after last week's sermon. David is on the run. <clears throat> but uh, I don't know about you, but I know what it's like to be on the run in, in, in a way. I, I can remember back to about fifth grade. I remember being somewhere in my neighborhood, maybe about a half a mile from home, and then I'm confronted with the school bully, Chris. Chris and his friend walk up to me, and they began taunting me. And I'm just scared. I'm outnumbered. I'm basically walking home backwards the whole way. And Chris just goes the whole time. He's running his mouth. You can see he's done this before. This is his routine. He's just going and going, and I'm just like so scared. This guy, he, he, wasn't, he was, wasn't that he was bigger than me. He just kind of had like this confidence, and he was just pursuing me. And so basically he walks me home in the most unpolite, unpleasant way. And uh, it wasn't until about uh, a couple months later that I realized in my fifth grade mind that I was actually stronger than Chris. We were playing around at a friend's house, and he was there, and I realized, watching him interact with different people, that Chris really wasn't that strong. He was just a bully. And something clicked in my mind. So he asked to wrestle me. And I had this opportunity to really show Chris who's boss. So the tables were turned. What do we often do when the tables are turned? When we realize that moment clicks that, okay, now I'm the one in control. We've seen it on cartoons and in movies. When something clicks and we suddenly realize we're no longer being pursued, we're no longer threatened, we're actually the one in power now. So that's kind of what's happening here in chapter 24 this week. David is being pursued, 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 and suddenly he finds himself in position to pursue Saul, to overtake him. So he's no longer on the run, but Saul is now in his hands. So I want us to key in on this a little bit. As we watch David, we know he's called a man after God's own heart. This is an opportunity for us to see what that's all about. What is a man after God's own heart? How does he respond when suddenly the tables are turned and now he's the one in authority? I think we have a lot to learn about God's heart by looking at David as the tables turn this week. The scripture we're reading from is 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you'd like to read along with me, please do. It's a whole chapter, but it's an interesting one, so we'll take the time to read it in the assembly here. 1 Samuel's kind of like, it's not halfway, it's about maybe one quarter way through the Bible. So if you just want to scan through there, you can look. Otherwise, I think we, pre we present it up here as well. So David spares Saul's life. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 choice men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Sounds like somewhere that could be here in Phoenix, doesn't it? <laughs> and he came to the sheepfolds by the way <clears throat> where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave and the men of David said to him, here is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. 
Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterwards, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. Notice it says, afterward, waited until Saul was a little bit at a safe distance and says, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, lo and behold, there's David. And David bows to the ground with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the, ro the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you surely should be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men still didn't trust Saul. They went up into the strongholds. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> would you pierce our hearts with your word by the Holy Spirit today. Will you teach us to look for something better than what our hands alone can grasp? Will you help us to kneel our hearts before your authority in all of life? Will you guard the words of my mouth and send us from here stronger? because your spirit is alive and your word is living. We rely on you, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Anyone in here a runner? Like to jog, do 5Ks, marathons? I, ran, I run a little bit. I, I did a run, uh, went for a marathon one time, and uh, I, had to, I had to bow out, got hurt on my 18-mile run. But here's the story of a 26-year-old woman, Rosie Ruiz, who actually won the Boston Marathon in 1980. It was an amazing thing. Can you imagine that? Runners, the apex of running is the Boston Marathon. I know from my father-in-law that to even get to the Boston, you have to qualify in a previous marathon. So you have to run 26 point however many miles fast enough to run 26 point whatever miles again. So this is a different breed of people, but Rosie Ruiz did it. Can you imagine her, what it felt like to be bowing your head and receiving that gold medal around your neck. She won, the, uh, she won the race, beat all the other women in the competition in just almost record time, about two and a half hours is where she, she marked there. So imagine the glory of that. However, there were some strange things that were going on at the same time because as they greeted her at the end, they recognized that Rosie's hair was in perfect condition and she was barely sweating. Man, she must have been a tremendous athlete. She made running and winning the Boston Marathon look easy. And it was using her signature strategy. Don't run the whole thing. <laughs> you see, Rosie had her strategy. It was reported two days after the marathon that people had seen Rosie come out about a mile away from the finish line and run that last mile and give it her all and win the whole marathon. It was also, as further investigation went, they found that Rosie had taken the subway, the, the clever New Yorker that she was, had taken the subway to qualify for the Boston. When she was on the subway, people were asking about her number, and she's like, well, I twisted my ankle. I, I just want to watch the end. So Rosie had found a way, found it in her authority to grasp the Boston Marathon title. I even wonder, was there even any pleasure in that, like getting awarded that gold medal, knowing that you didn't work, you didn't do the sweat, you're barely even sweating now. You didn't put the months and the years and just the genetics it takes to, to win something like that. You see, the point is, is that we often grasp for things that are in our reach. And this is, this is pretty comedic, but in reality, don't we all grasp for, for things prematurely? It's so funny. We don't, we, sometimes we don't even just want to make ourselves look better. We want to put ourselves in the throne. We want to put ourselves in the highest seat in all creation. I'm the sovereign ruler of my life. So we can laugh at Rosie, but we also have to look at ourselves. Some of you are tremendously disciplined. You know about training. You know about eating well, studying well. Some of you have very disciplined lives, but even, even so, we all are faced with the daily temptation to not only elevate ourselves, but to put ourselves in the highest seat in the kingdom put ourselves above God. When we take things 
titles for ourselves, titles that are often actually given to us. Beloved child. Man of God. Woman of God. We try to take for ourselves these things that God has already given to us. We want to circumvent the weight and the difficulty and the suffering that we often have to go through before those things shine most brightly. So when in pain, we often self-promote and forego the Christian virtue of patience. Isn't that true? I know that is for myself. So the one point I want you to get from this, this message today as we look in the scriptures, as I've dug in here, as I've mined the, the scriptures, this is one thing that stands out to me. That since God's plans for us are more gracious than we can attain on our own, we must wait for something better. Since God's plans for you are far more gracious than you could ever grasp and ever attain on your own, we must wait for something better. So there's three things that I, that I see as I look in the text that we can glean from David, who was the ideal king of Israel. And in an interestingly strange way, it was his kingship who Christ came and walked in his footsteps, but took it to the next level. So there's so much to glean from watching David's kingship. How did he ascend? This whole last few weeks is about David ascending to the, his right throne. How did he get there? Well, this is what I'm looking at. I'm looking at David's heart, David's community, and David's vindication. As I look at his ascension, I see his heart, I see his community, and I see his vindica vindication standing out starkly in this passage. So, point one, David's heart. So we left off last week. David was hiding in the cave of Adullam. And he was being hunted, though he was the king's son-in-law, though he was a decorated soldier in the army. He was being hunted literally like an animal. Looking at chapter 23, David's continuing to run. It says even in chapter 23 that Saul sought him every day. So Saul is seeking David, every day. It gets to the point in, in 23 that David's men are in the wilderness of Maon, and Saul is circling this mountain. David's men are hiding on one side of the mountain. Saul's men are on the other side, and they send this search group, and the searchers go out, and they're closing in. If you could watch like Lord of the Rings, you'd see the men are going around, and David's men are pointed right here, and they're just about to close in, and it just seems like David's number is up. But one of Saul's commanders come and says, hey, I know you're busy um, trying to kill David, but the Philistines are raiding our homes back, back home in Israel. So Saul leaves. God delivers David once again. So David is running. He's running. He's running. And as I looked over these last couple chapters, I see he's doing a lot of running. Let me tell you just the places that he's been since last week. So he's in the cave of Adullam. Then he goes to Moab to drop off his family. He felt like his father would be safer there. Then he goes to the Hereth forests. 
per the prophet Gad's advice. Then he goes to Kila. Then the text says he went wherever he could go. Then he goes to the wilderness of Ziph, where there's a grove of trees. He and his men are hiding out there. Then he goes to the wilderness of Ma'an, and he's almost caught there, as we just talked about. And then finally, David now is in the strongholds of Engedi, a place that sounds a lot like Phoenix, Arizona. So David is hiding out. He's been running. Saul is just after him, hunting him. And David and his men find a cave to hide in, another cave, seeking God's vindication down low. So David enters this cave. He and his men, the text says, they were deep in the recesses of the cave. And something happened. And you can, guys who, you've been in a locker room, you've experienced this before, you, 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 he, they smelled something. And the guys began looking at each other and giving each other elbows, like, all right, who did it? Looking at it, you could, you just, you could just imagine the conversation, the locker room talk these guys are having. And then some, one of the men kind of walked down, follows nose and sees, lo and behold, the king of Israel is taking a royal bathroom break in our cave. We've been running away from him through all these towns, all these places, and out of all the caves in the world, our king is taking a royal bathroom break. My. So his men urge him. They say, David, <laughs> surely the Lord is doing something here. I mean, this doesn't just happen every day. We've been on the run. I mean, we've been all over. Phoenix, Arizona, cave to cave. And here is Saul right before us. So David responds to his men, and he stealthily sneaks up, cuts off a portion of Saul's robe. But then on his way back, something strange happens. His moment's here. His vindication is right here. The Lord's obviously delivered it to him. But something strange happens. David's heart strikes him. So his own heart strikes him. What does it mean to be struck by your heart? It's like a civil war within your, within your soul. Have any of you ever experienced this? He couldn't just simply and resolutely do whatever he had in mind to do. There was something, something else going on. I think this is a key to this passage that David's own heart struck him. It tells us something. His heart was in a tender place. His heart was in communion with, with God enough that in this opportune time to take vengeance that has obviously been delivered by the Lord, his heart strikes him and says, no, you can't do this. Matthew 13, 5, Christ tells us that for this people's heart is, is grown, has grown dull. And throughout the scriptures, we hear about calloused hearts. NIV uses the term calloused. That's a heart that's thick, and it's not in communion with God. 
It's not the kind of heart that, that God's after. He's looking for a heart that's open, that's accessible, a heart that can be struck in the midst of your workday, in the midst of your relationships. I don't know about you, but I've, I've actually experienced this heart striking <clears throat> often. Our heart strikes us and says, there's something better. There's something better. And I often don't know what that something better is, but I've often experienced that heart striking against myself. And for me, it was often in my dating relationships before meeting my wife. I don't know if you've had this similar experience, but I would often meet someone and I would feel the grace and the peace enough to get into the relationship. But then at some point, heart would strike against me. And I would think, it, it, after a while, I mean, I'm, I'm 30 years old, I'm thinking, am I cursed? Am I, am I just not allowed to marry? Am I never going to be able to get married? Because my heart always strikes me. And as I look at the circumstances at that time, I thought, I would think, this is, surely the Lord's given this to me. This girl's way out of my league. You know? She's way more intelligent than I am. She's way more beautiful than, than I am. She's way more thoughtful than I am. But my heart strikes me. And I, often, I literally thought, am I cursed, Lord? I must be cursed. But as I look back over my life, I see, and I wish I could be, say I was faithful every time. Sometimes I just persisted and I try to get psychological, maybe like this is like an internal struggle. I'm trying to stop myself from actually getting what I want. And, but as I look back over, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And I see the Lord was being so faithful. The Lord said, Tyson, I have something better than what you can attain for yourself. And I eventually, um, in the small church I was going to where there wasn't many young women, I often wondered, without, will I ever uh, meet my wife? The Lord brought a young lady in whose dad was a pastor who was out of town that weekend, and she visited our church. And I decided to be the greeter that day. So that's a plug for greeters right there. <laughs> so often, as we're in pursuit, the Lord will strike our heart if we're in relationship with him. Because he's saying, I have something better. I love you. I know you. And he gave me a wife that's so far out of my league, I couldn't have even, I'm, I'm learning more every day. What a wonderful wife Emily is. But where's the application to all this? <clears throat> I really think it's in how do we foster a heart that's tender towards the Lord? And as I look at David's life, once again, there's a psalm that's tied to this passage. Many theologians have tied Psalm 57 to this passage as well. And in that psalm, what's David doing? He's praying. He's talking to God. He's inviting God into his most sorrowful situations in life. He's singing songs in the night. He's singing to God, literally singing praises, I think, in his bedroom when he's alone and he's confused. He has a real prayer life. And I really believe that we're gifted with this sweet communion that David had with God. How much more so with Christ? 
who brings our prayers right to him, who makes us not only his, cho- not, not his chosen king, but his children. So in Christ, we have this intercession that we, we utter even a f- faint whisper. And the Lord says, yes, son, yes, yes, my daughter. I often think of even these prayers that I send up sometimes, I think of them, that just equated to as much as a spit wad. But I see the Father's hands on his table, these wise and strong hands unrolling that little wad of paper, pressing out over his table and leaning in and pouring over those words that I just uttered. As we walk with the Lord, as we pray, as we sing songs in the night, our heart becomes tender. Our heart becomes aware of the voice of God. Where do we hear the voice of God? It's in the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures, reading the word, dwelling in the word. I notice when I'm most rooted in the scripture, when I'm memorizing scripture, is often when I'm hearing words as I go through my day. My heart strikes me. I remember one relationship I was in the thick of, and it was going terribly. And the scripture came to me and said, it's better to pluck out your eye. It's better to enter the kingdom with lacking one eye and lacking a hand than to to lose your inheritance. That scripture came in an opportune time, and it was so hard to hear. My heart was striking against me, but the very core of my desire, I, I, I got a lot of sense of identity from relationships growing up, and and still battle that. But that word came in timely, and my heart struck against me. The Lord spoke so clearly to me. It was so hard, but he spoke to me. There's something better. There's something better than what we can grasp with our own hands. There's something better than we can conceive of. And that something better comes from a relationship with God. Songs in the night a prayer life that's active, attentiveness to God's word, because he will speak and he will bless you with the curse of, having, of being heartstruck, just as he did with David. <coughs> Another thing that I see is David's community. David's community is a key part of, of what the Lord's doing to bring him to this place. However, in this passage, there's, there's a, There's a twist to this because David's community, these ragamuffin crews who are now his mighty men, are giving him some counsel that that in the end doesn't seem the best. What are they saying to him in chapter 24? They're saying, David, behold, the Lord is saying this, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hands, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So here his mighty men are surrounding him, and they're saying, David, Saul's right down there. The Lord's doing it. He's doing it right now. Go and kill him, and let's be done with this. I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot to offer there that all of those mighty men are going to move from the cave to the palace. And David initially responds to this advice. He listens to the community, rightfully so. We, our ears should be open to the community. The Lord speaks so often through the community. So David goes, goes after Saul. But as he gets there, 
he does the unexpected. He cuts off a piece of his robe and brings it back, and the guys are probably like, what's going on? But not only that, David's heart struck, and he said, oh, I feel terrible. Look what I did. And they're looking at him. Okay, you, you cut off a piece of his robe. You didn't even give him a scratch. That doesn't look too bad, but David's heart struck, and he began speaking to the community and saying, no, no, far be it from us to raise our hand against the Lord's anointed. So David not only refrains from taking vengeance, he doesn't listen to the community, but he goes the next step, and he persuades them. With his ears attuned to the Lord and what his the commandment to not raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. He feared God. He respected authority. So David went the next level. Not, not only did he not receive the accommodating advice he received, but he said, the text says, so David persuaded his men and did not permit them to attack Saul. So David not only doesn't receive this advice to go and have your way, like, I'm sure the Lord's doing this, brother. Like, go and take it. But he goes the next step and says, no, I can't do that. My heart struck me, and I can't let you do that either. He persuades his men, we will not do this. This is the Lord's anointed. We're going to wait longer. We're going to suffer longer. You see what he's asking them? He's asking them to suffer longer and wait longer. And that takes faith. So David not only attunes his ear to the Lord rather than the crowd, he persuades them, his community. He persuades them, no, we won't do this thing. Far be it from us to do this. Esther on Kim was a teacher, a Korean teacher during the Japanese occupation. And it came to the point in which the Japanese were requiring all of the Korean citizens to devote their allegiance to them and their God. To renounce all other gods. It was their way of coming in and taking control of the situation and seeing who's, com who's, who's going to follow our instructions, who's going to comply with what we're doing, and who's going to be the problem people. So Esther on Kim's walking up this hill where they're to make this, this vow to something other than God she has her students behind her, and she is pondering what's about to happen. And she knows that if she's to denounce this foreign authority and declare her belief in God, that she is without a doubt going to endure at least torture in prison. But as she walks up that hill, her heart becomes more resolute. No, no. I am a follower of Christ and I will let it be known publicly and my hand be in the, my life be in the hands of the Lord. And Esther Ahn Kim went up there that day and she gave her life, she gave her life to the Lord. God, my life is in your hands. And she said, I'm sorry, I cannot follow your ways. I'm a Christian. And so the, what you expect would happen, happened. She was brought to prison. She was tortured. And this went on for several years. And she says, it was only by the grace of God that I was able to maintain my faith. But one of the highlights of this story for me was this. At one point, Esther is 
her heart is weak, and she says, I just know there's no way for me, as much as I love the Lord, as much as I've already gotten myself in deep, there's no way when they question me today that I'm going to continue to uphold this faith. I'm just completely physically, emotionally, spiritually, socially depleted. I have nothing left in me. And she's telling her mother this from a prison cell. And her mother says, Esther, you go. And essentially what Mordecai told, told Queen Esther, he says, you go and you live for the Lord or you die for the Lord. And this word from her mother, how, how counter-instinctive is that for a mother to say, go and die, don't release. How tempting would it have been as a mother to say, just save yourself, whatever it takes, sweet Esther, I love you. Just preserve your life. But her mother of all people said, no, you go. Go, Esther. Testify of the Lord's goodness and faithfulness. Let your life be in his hands. It's an amazing story. I, I, I encourage you all to, to look it up. Um, John Piper's wi wife wrote a book about uh, five amazing women uh, and their extraordinary God, and you can find her story online. But she went on to endure all this, and the Lord actually restored her out of the prison, and she, uh, she maintained a, a powerful ministry after this. But the thing I want to highlight is the fact that Esther received this counsel from her mother. The only community she had at that time was her mother. And her mother said, you go, and you die if you have to die, Esther. God is faithful. He's a loving God. Your life is in his hands, and he has more for you than you can grasp on your own. There's something better, Esther, than even escaping this prison cell. There's something better. This is a theme throughout the scriptures. The Apostle Paul is no stranger when it comes to suffering. And he says in 2 Corinthians 11, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness. And what I see here is the Apostle Paul's speaking to the community of believers. Go forward. Don't circumvent the pain. Don't circumvent the suffering. There's something better in that. There's something better. So I encourage us as a body to learn what we see with David here. Please, always keep our ears open to each other. I'm not talking about rugged individualism. I'm just going to do what I think, and I'm not listening to anybody else. That's a whole, that's a whole other problem. So keep our ears open to the community. The Lord often speaks through friendship, through leaders, through elders, through friends, through small groups. But the key <coughs> is to resist easy escapes. When you sense that you're receiving advice from someone and counsel from someone who dearly loves you and they're giving you an escape route. As David refused to accept that, refused to accept it. I remember a close friend of mine, um, two close friends who were married, and uh, they were just, they had a hilarious and amazing, uh, just really a beautiful marriage in many ways. 
but there was also some broken, uh, some brokenness in it, and they had some very different political bents, and as my friend's wife um, became more and more involved with uh, her crowd, um, a, a friend came alongside her and said, just divorce him. Like, look at me, I'm divorced. Like, there's, it's, it's so much easier. There's such a better way. And sadly, that's, that's what happened. She did leave him. She took that advice. She took the easy way out. But I'm afraid there wasn't anything better in that. So we must resist the easy ways of circumventing uh, this race that God has put us in. There's something much better. And the other thing, we must learn to be a potent friend like David. Not only did he resist that when he sensed that it was circumventing the, the goodness uh, of, of the suffering and the faithfulness of God that would shine through eventually, David spoke to his friends and he urged them and he persuaded them, we will not do this. Just as Esther, uh, Kim's mother did. She persuaded her, no, go through it, go through it. So as we engage our friends, as we engage our spouses, our loved ones, our children, let's say no. We will wait. We're Christians. There's something better. There's something better than escaping this. So when we're in small groups, let's not just kind of sit around and passively like listen to people share and say, oh, I'm sure it'll be all right. I'm, I'm sure what you're doing is there's the reason for you doing that. But with humility, approach your brother and sister and say, no. Brother and sister, as I see it, I think, I think there's something better. I think you should consider this. Pray about this. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think there's something better. Because the Lord is faithful. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted. But an enemy multiplies kisses. So let's be a community that speaks the truth and love to each other in tenderness. The final thing we see as David is being pursued and as the turn of the table is David's vindication. And this is just so fun to think about because we've been seeing David chase down cave to cave, valley, wilderness, forest. And finally, the king is taking a bathroom break in his very own cave. So David's vindication is at hand. So David's not falsely humble. We see in chapter 24, verse 8. So after Saul leaves, David waits a little while. David comes out, and he addresses Saul and says, Saul, why are you chasing me? Why are you hunting me down? Can you not see? I'm not your enemy. I fear the Lord. I would never touch you. I would never kill you. And he holds up this piece of cloth, and Saul looks down and holds up his cape, and yep, matching patterns. Now imagine this. If David would have killed Saul, <clears throat> this occasion would have never been there. So Saul goes further. Saul responds to David, and his heart, we should just take him at face value. Saul sincerely heartstruck now. Now Saul's the heartstruck one. And he looks up and says, David, verse 17, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you with evil. 
And Saul goes further and even is now in the position of asking David a request. Can you imagine the king who's hunting you down? The boss, the employer, the friend, the person you've been in courtroom is now asking you for a favor. Can I just ask a favor real quick? You know, now that my gun's not pointed at you anymore. And he says, uh, will you remember my offspring? Because surely you're going to be the king. And what does David say? David says, no way, Jose. David says, I will. And then David goes and hides because he still doesn't trust him. But I think the key thing here is the fact that Saul, the whole assembly, Saul had 3,000 of the choice soldiers behind him, and they're all seeing this. David's mighty men are seeing this. Can you imagine the humiliation? His soldiers were out chasing this man down as though he's some bandit. And here he is just saying, I saved your life, King Saul. And he's bowing down before King Saul. Like, this is the guy we're after when the Philistines are back home raiding our, our village. So Saul's heart struck now, and Saul is humiliated. And Saul declares, David, you are more righteous than I. And imagine if David would have killed Saul. I mean, to go into the, to go into the kingship with the murder of the, the previous king all the division, all of the problems that that would have resulted in. David killed Saul. It, could, it creates all this opportunity for, for division. But here, as David waits and refrains from grasping what was in his reach, the Lord elevates him and says, look at this. I'm going to have Saul sing your praises before the assembly. And if Saul was dead, there'd be no air in his lungs to sing David's praises. So the Lord has vindicated the Lord has vindicated David here with the words of Saul, something better. And I don't know about you, but I, I encounter this all the time um, in, the, in the home with my, with my wife, my, my precious wife, beloved wife. We get in conflicts, and I often go to the, this is what I did, this is what I did, this is what you did. And I try to balance it out and say, who's more right, who's more just? I try to prove, and then often the children will see and like, I bet they're just going to think I'm such a hero as they see me like convincing my wife that I was right and you were wrong. Can you just imagine, man, dad's awesome. Look at him. Man, he really showed mom like that she was wrong and he was right. I bet they're just so proud of me at that time. <laughs> but the times when I win is this, when God's grace, when I receive God's grace and I simply refrain from the fight, I confess where I have hurt her. I confess the concern that she's bringing up. That, you know what? You have a great point there. And that's a legitimate feeling. And I can understand why you'd feel that way. And I refrain from the fight. And because I have such a godly wife, do you know what happens in those cases? We go on, go back to cooking, whatever, changing diapers, and she quietly comes back to me and says, Tyson, I'm sorry. Or vice versa. Happens, happens different ways. Tyson, I'm sorry. When I close my mouth, the Lord vindicates me. When we close our mouth, the Lord vindicates us. So let's remember this as, uh, as we go to our workplaces, as we're in our homes, we're convincing our children, as we're convincing our parents sometimes. It's like we have to vindicate ourselves. You don't understand, Mom. You don't understand, Dad. But as we listen to them and show them that we're reasonable, <laughs> okay, I hear what you're saying. That's a legitimate thing, Dad. That's a, that's a legitimate thing, Mom. That's a legitimate thing you might say to your employer, okay. 
all right, my ears are open to you. And the Lord comes in by the power of his spirit and he vindicates you. And oftentimes it'll be public. He'll show, he'll show who you are as a follower of Christ. And sometimes it's not public. That's a that's, that's faith issue right there. But God is faithful to vindicate us when we refuse to vindicate ourselves. So Christ, Christ is always wanting something better for us. And his example was to always look for something better on earth. When the, uh, the devil came to tempt Jesus, he said, you know, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, no, the word of God says this. He had a prayer life. He had a word life. And the devil said, throw yourself down and I'll give you all this. And Jesus said, I'm not going to take the shortcut. feel nice to get that gold medal wrapped around my neck right now. But I'm not going to receive that. And even when it was his own community, when Peter came to Jesus and said, no, God forbid, Peter said to Jesus, I have a plan for your life. And it doesn't end in you dying on the cross. And Jesus sharply rebuked his brother who he loved in community. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. We know he came back and loved on Peter later as well, but at that moment he said, get thee behind me, Satan. This road of suffering is for me. So Christ is our greatest example. As he died on the cross, he was vindicated. Even the Roman soldier looked up and said, surely this man was the Son of God. Heavenly Father, we 